Good morning. Today, Pastor Tom is going to be teaching from 1 Kings chapter 4. So if you could take a moment and turn to 1 Kings with me. I'm going to be reading verse 20 to 34. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Haman, Calco, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Today's challenge is to take what has become a bigger than biblical name, Solomon, and bring him down to size. We see him as a mythical character, bigger than life, his wisdom, his knowledge, this superhuman intellect. And if we, if we do that, we miss the story, the Solomon of the Bible. Because while he had a season in his life where uh, God blessed him with great wisdom and great accomplishments, he also had an equally significant season of hedonism, of self-indulgence that actually left him towards the end of his life devastated and fainting for want of hope. When you come to the Bible fresh and just read it, you see that these people were just normal people. God did great things through them, but yet they also were flawed. And so when you take the whole story in place, what it is is a lesson about grace, about a God who calls us to a life that's bigger than we can live. But when we live it in him, provides grace for the journey. And the Old Testament is a pathway to help us understand why Jesus came. Solomon has his place in that narrative, in that story. His life is really about how life can be for any of us when we line ourselves up to God's purposes, when it's lived with God, and how bad it can get when we lose that focus. Solomon reigned over Israel for 40 years, and these two chapters in his life almost divide exactly in half, 23 and 17, so roughly two decades. One, helping Israel achieve the zenith of their existence as a nation on earth. And then the the second half, this slide down into uh, hedonistic nihilism. And for many of us that are midway through our own journey, this is an opportunity for you to do a little bit of a checkup as to which path you're tracking on. Because you can be a very religious person, but tracking on the path of self-importance, self-alignment. And 20 years from now, you can look back and say, how did I get this far off? It's decisions you're making now. This is an opportunity for a course correction for you. And those of you that are younger and have most of your adult life ahead of you, this is an opportunity for you to gain from Solomon the secrets to being what God intended you to be, for you to achieve greatness, not in our sense of it, but in God's sense of it, and to get focused on that in a way that you can hold on to it, to learn from his mistake. Yes, he was a very wealthy man, and it was despairing for him. 
to have that wealth actually in the end not buy him happiness. And I've often thought to myself at the end of the month when I'm trying to pay all the bills, there are times I say to the Lord, Lord, I, I know that money doesn't buy happiness, but I'd really like to be a test case for that. <laughs> and those of you that are younger, that are looking forward in your life, might say, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. No, you're not. Your moral compass is broken, just like all of us are born with a broken moral compass. The right thing to do is to learn from people like Solomon who made the mistake so that you get it right. That's the course we're going to take. This chapter of his life where he was in tune to God's purposes, and then this chapter of his life where he just lived for himself. And then the third will just be a little epilogue where Solomon looks back. There's clarity in hindsight. At the end of his life, he looked back and has some really powerful However, very simple things to say that are what it's all about. So that's where we're going. Where we are right now, as Cody read, is about as good as it ever gets for Israel. Chapter 4, verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. If you go on to uh, verse 25, we see during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. We have politicians making all sorts of stump speeches, all sorts of promises. That's a pretty good stump speech. If I was thinking about a nation that I'd want to live in, I'd want it to be a strong nation, populous nation. I'd want to have my basic living cared for to pursue happiness and be happy. I'd like to live in safety. In our case, we might replace our own vine and fig tree with our own home and 401k, but the principle is roughly the same. This is what Israel achieved out of generations back where God promised a childless couple, Abram and Sarai, that he would give them a child, but then out of that child, he would give them a great nation. These two decades are the moment out of all that took place through Egypt and out, the great battles, the two centuries of the judges, the failed kingship of Saul, the establishing of the true kingly line of David. Finally, Solomon is the one that brings them to this zenith. And it had every opportunity to stay there, but it doesn't. It's two decades and then a long slide down. And that is so much about Solomon as the leader. So let's just look at Solomon during this period. I'm just going to run through a whole list of them. Verse 21, he united all of Israel. He also ruled over all of the surrounding countries who all paid tribute to him. And Solomon was their protector. So he had a vast kingdom. He was a master of diplomacy. He had peace on all sides. If we backed up and read the previous verses, we'd see that he established a government that was well-structured, simple, but effective with lines of authority. He had a strong military. In verses 27 and 28, we see that he established great wealth, not just himself, but the nation. Then we move into verse 29, and we see this legendary wisdom that he had. He was sought out by people all over the world. Imagine that. Imagine somebody's wisdom in their lifetime being thought of where people just had to make a pilgrimage there. Sort of like in my day and age, Mother Teresa, who served in the slums in, in Calcutta and didn't seek greatness, but found greatness as, as the world found her. World leaders would make pilgrimages to meet and talk to Mother Teresa. Solomon had that reputation with the world. He was a true Renaissance man. He was a musician and poet. He wrote over 1,000 songs. 
He was a philosopher. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs, a scientist and a naturalist. He lectured on plant life and animal life. He was also a great builder. Were we to read on, we'd find that God used Solomon to build the temple. He built his own palace. He built a grand palace for Pharaoh's daughter, one of his favorite wives. He built whole cities just for storehouses, cities to house armies, a great wall around Jerusalem and a famous citadel. Look at this life. This is a man who achieved on many levels. You look at it and go, how did he do this? We know the Bible's not in any way trying to exaggerate the life of these people. It's trying to present them as people just like you and me that God can use through faith and by virtue of his call. How does Solomon fit into that? This is just too good to be true. He's an intellectual superman. He's a cognitive freak of nature. (laughs) Is that what this is really all about? How did he achieve this? I guess that's the big question. And and, uh, you may know of the most famous encounter that Solomon had with God just before this, at the beginning of his rule. And that's in chapter 3. Let's go back there together. We're going to see the secret to how all of this took place. And it was essentially God's blessing in Solomon's life. Um, We're going to start reading at verse 4 of chapter 3. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices For that was the most important high place of the time. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David. Because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child. And do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized that it had been a dream. This is the second of the stories of Solomon that has found its way outside of the Bible into cultural mythos, where he's given an opportunity as he's worshiping God to ask for anything. What would you ask for? Can I first ask for unlimited wishes? That's not Solomon. There's something that's revealed about Solomon's heart at this stage in his life that is critical for this. Now, Were we to go back another chapter to David's final words to Solomon, several times David refers to Solomon's intelligence and wisdom that he already had. It's important that you see that because it makes sense as we look at what we can learn for our journey with God through Solomon. 
Solomon was already known for his intelligence, his insight, and his wisdom. David encouraged him in his final, you go back and read it, in his final words to him to use that wisdom well. The very fact that this is what Solomon asked for, does that not show that there's wisdom there already? He understood the need for it. When you think about people, isn't it true that often the things that they ask of God are in tune to their giftedness and their ability and what God's already doing in their life? Why is it that a person with the gift of evangelism never believes the church is ever doing enough to reach the lost? Reveals their gift. A person with the gift of generosity never feels like we're doing enough in that area. And given the opportunity, would always do more. You see, that's what's happening here. Solomon is already a young man that God's wired for his life. God gifted Solomon for this job. He already had intelligence, insight, and wisdom And when asked by God what he needed for the job, had the wisdom to know he needed more. He needed God to make the most of it. And so God blesses him. Listen, this is a story about someone that God made the most of how he had already created them to live and be. This is a story of someone who took how God had created them and put them in God's hands and God magnified it and used it for his glory. I want to just take this request apart and talk about three keys to this moment that I think were why Solomon was able to achieve with such excellence the life that God had purposed for him. When you think about your life, you have to think about what it is that God's made you to do. What he's gifted you to do, what he's called you to do. And you have to not only line yourself up with that giftedness and calling, but there are also very important conditions of the heart that have to be in tune as well. So I've broken it down to three things. Does that surprise you? The first key to Solomon's greatness, and I want to be really careful when you talk about greatness You hear echoes of the the name it and claim it, the self-achievement gospel that's out there. I'm not talking about that. You understand what I'm talking about is God's greatness through us, using us fully, firing on all cylinders as God created us. So when we look at that greatness, there are three keys that are here. The first is worship. Solomon demonstrates a passion for God. Just like his father David, there is no temple yet. The most sacred places were actually not in the city of Jerusalem. So he went to the most sacred place and he worshiped God wholeheartedly. It was out of that passionate pursuit of God that God speaks to him. You're never going to understand or hear God's call in your life if you're not seeking God. It's in that pursuit of him that we become comfortable with his character and our life gets tuned into his character. We become comfortable not with just what we're saying to him, but what he's saying to us through his word and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's out of that passionate pursuit of God, which is what true worship is, that we're able to hear God's call and understand what he's saying to us. And as long as God is our first passion, All the other passions that drive us are held at bay and tuned to God's purposes. And when God stops becoming our primary passion, those other appetites and passions take over. And that's what's going to happen in Solomon's life 23 years from this moment. He loses that focus for worship. But it's here now. The second thing is he had a sense of his purpose. 
Let's read it again, verses 6 through 9. He says, you, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people. You see the focus here? Remember when we were looking at the kind of king that God had spoken of in Deuteronomy? The king after his own heart, a king that would not serve as sovereign, but would let God be sovereign, would not seek to be worshipped and adored as the kings of men, but would seek the adoration and the worship of God. That's, that's who David was. That's who Solomon became. He understood his role. He understood these people were not his. They were the Lord's. And he had a, a task to perform on behalf of God for those people. So he understood his purpose. Listen to me. That's equally true for us. It may not be quite as dramatic as the story of Solomon, but your true calling is not really around your choice of career, although you will use the abilities God gave you in your career. And it's not about your earthly achievements. Because just as God had a people for Solomon to lead, God has a plan for you. There is a, a kingdom of God that you've been called to work in. And you have to understand the eternal purpose, that there is a task on earth that God's calling you to do. And the third thing that's a key to Solomon's uh, achievements here is integrity. Notice he doesn't just ask for knowledge and insight. On a political level. He wants to rule well, yes. But he wants to live rightly. He says, give me a discerning heart. Doesn't even use the word wisdom. Although that's probably a good definition for it. Give me a discerning heart that I may rule well. And that I may discern right from wrong. See? His heart was God's. He was a man of worship. He understood his purpose was what God had in front of him to do. And it was God's work that was most important in his life. And finally, he knew as he went about doing that work, he needed to reflect the character of God, to live in a way that would honor God. I want to know right from wrong. I'm going to live according to that path. Go back and read Deuteronomy 17, I believe, where Moses describes the kind of king God would seek. And tell me if that's not what we see in Solomon here. That's why God blesses him. He's lined himself up exactly as he needs to for God to take who he's already made him to be and just amplify it by his power and his presence in his life. And that repeats itself over and over again in the life of followers of Christ who follow that same path, seek wholeheartedly after God, and understand they, they live for an eternal purpose that is God's above everything else. And so everything they do, they seek to do it in a way that brings honor to him, discerning right from wrong. And move forward to chapter 10, and we see another snapshot of the result of what's happening here. 
Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, article of silver and gold robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him. In Jerusalem, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from the queue. The royal merchants purchased them from queue. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. If we were looking through the lens of those in that day, we'd understand just how significant those things are. We have to translate those into what a significant life and a, a, a life of possession and influence and authority looks like. But that's what it looked like back then. In other words, more of the same right through those first 23 years. But then we move to Act 2. It doesn't stay there. The story picks up as we move into chapter 11, second half of the story. King Solomon, however, loved Many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites and Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Now, this is not a lesson of how problematic wives can be. That's not what this is. That would be a horrible abuse of the passage. It shows us that Solomon, who was a passionate man, the passion focused by God led him to accomplish great things in God's name. But that passion misdirected went to other appetites. And in his case, as it is with so many men, it was his appetites for women that was his downfall. Let's read on and see exactly the nature of it. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Malach, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. What an incredible downturn. How is it that somebody born with wisdom who had God amplify that wisdom to a level where it was legendary among other nations, how could he get to this point where he just so turns away? When he achieved everything he had set out to achieve, he lost his focus and he lost his purpose. And he became the man whose story is told autobiographically in the book of Ecclesiastes. So keep your thumb right where we are in 1 Kings and then go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 16 of chapter 1. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. 
Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that was also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under the sun during the few days of their lives. The pessimism that's here at this point. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the of the heart of man, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun." I wish I could take time to explain how somebody could pursue this hedonistic path that obviously leads them to such despair and still claim to have kept their wisdom. What it begs is for us to understand that there's a difference between having wisdom and acting wisely. Do you understand what I'm saying? We lose focus. We lose focus and we no longer can live according to God's wisdom once our passions overtake us. We stop living wisely. And if we were to trace back and see what happened, first of all, it was his, his sexual passions that overtook him. Then a tolerance of the gods of those women, allowing them to worship in Israel, their gods, and then being drawn in himself step by step, degree by degree. And we get to this point in chapter 2, verse 17 of Ecclesiastes, where he just hits rock bottom, and it's said this way, So I hated life. From the greatest king Israel had and would ever know, one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, to this point of utter despair, after he had tried everything that life could give you to bring pleasure. He hated and he despised his life. Depression and unfulfillment. That was chapter 2. Go back with me now to where we were and see what happens to his kingdom as a result. Chapter 11. Let's just pick up at verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And then he promises that he would not do it in Solomon's life. And were it not for his promise to David, he would take the kingdom away from Solomon's line completely. But God had a more eternal purpose for that kingly line in Christ, as we'll see in the weeks to come. But the next generation, the kingdom is split apart, and we'll start that study next week. It's really very tragic, but we'll learn some very hopeful lessons even in the midst of it. So here's the result of this 
this man who achieved such greatness, who had every opportunity to establish a lasting empire that could have been one of the world's greatest empires. Now it was just a flash, a two-decade flash of greatness that then fell into a kingdom that immediately falls apart. He loses his kingdom, and he fails to provide any adequate leader to come after him. Why? Because instead of serving God's kingdom and God's purposes, he spent the back half of his life serving his purposes, his own passions, his own desires. And he failed God completely. The back half of his reign, the safety disappears. Nations begin to attack. Internally, his governors begin to have intrigue against him. The people get oppressed. They're no longer happy because now he's using them to fulfill his passions. So he's abusing them. They're under stress. They're overburdened. They've lost their joy. That's the difference between godly leadership and self-serving leadership. So now we pick him up at the end of his life, and that's the end of Ecclesiastes. This is the epilogue. And this is what he says looking back. Chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. My life has been a laboratory. I've tried everything. Here's what I have to say. Fear God. And keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God. That's, that's awe and reverence in Scripture. That's worship. Worship God and keep his commandments. What? All that? This is what you've got left? All this great wisdom? All the stuff you've learned about plants and animals and life and then the lessons from your own despair? That's what you got left? Worship God? in awe and wonder, and keep his commandments? If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I think that's exactly what God said to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. <laughs> Isn't that what the law and the tabernacle were all about? Obey God's commandments and worship him. You mean in the end, the only true wisdom is God's wisdom? And in the end, it's really just that simple? Yeah, it is. And how tragic that Solomon took such a devastating path that affected his life and generations that would follow in order to come back to what God had given as the wisdom of ages, generations ago. For us today, think about this. In Christ, in Christ, God has called us into his kingdom. We are a kingdom of priests, right? A royal priesthood. We are called to do great things for God. He has gifted each of us with gifts for that purpose, right? This is interesting. The book of James says that the very wisdom of Solomon is available to all of us. We just ask like he did. We tune our lives to God. How do we do that? Think about this. It all happens today through Christ. I just want to hit on it quickly. What were the three keys? First key was worship, right? How do we worship? We worship Christ. God exalted him, gave him the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're supposed to be in tune to God's purpose. What's our purpose in the New Testament? For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're supposed to live a life of integrity and honor. What's our standard? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, for us, this takes us full circle. It takes us back to the grace, back to the cross, back to Christ. How do we ultimately tune ourselves to the life God has called us to? We tune ourselves to Christ. We worship, we follow, we obey, we honor him. It's why Christ gave us the celebration. We're going to close our service with the Lord's table in order to bring us constantly back to the cross, the thing that gives us life, that puts us all on level territory with our sin, but also on level territory with the forgiveness and grace of Christ to tune our lives again to God's purposes, to God's call, to God's path for us. Because we remember we were bought with a price and therefore we live to honor God. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for this great gift of your table that reminds us that it's through your shed blood, your bruised and battered body on the cross, your wounds, that the wrath of God was poured out against sin, and therefore we can know the love of God, the peace of God, that you became our sin so that we can become your righteousness. And we celebrate that again today. But as we do, Father, today we remember that we were bought we are owned by you, and we remember to tune ourselves to your purposes and to your call. In Jesus' name, amen.